Welcome to episode three of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I am an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today's topic is contracts. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> This is this is pretty important, so we wanted to give it its own its own podcast episode so we can discuss it. Um this is also take two of <laughs> <laughs> of our contracts podcast because the first time we tried to do this we were having all sorts of technical issues. Yes. All over the place. My my computer was updating and I had to jerry rig a recording thing on my phone, but my internet connection went out and it was trying to make a phone call on my iPad. It just wasn't happening. So this is yeah. take two. This is take two. And this is my first time using my microphone. So, um, one, <laughs> hopefully it works and you can all hear me when I'm speaking. Um, yes. we're hoping two, that the audio is the better is better this time. <laughs> yes. We're, we're, we're kind of shooting for like getting incrementally better with each podcast that we record. Um, right. <laughs> we didn't really do a lot of practicing or research or anything. We just kind of jumped in. So, uh, so yeah, so hopefully this is a little bit, a little bit improved from last time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's just go ahead and dive right in then. Um, so the contracts process, obviously, you know, as a as a writer, you went through querying and submission, and now your book's acquired, and now we get into the actual hard, nitty-gritty business stuff of, of publishing, and that's mm-hmm. where the contracts come in, mm-hmm. and Kelly, is, this is what you do at your, at your yes. job, so mm-hmm. why yep. don't you take us through kind of the basic process, like what happens, you know, after the sort of verbal handshake between all parties. Right. Um, what happens next? Okay. Um, well, a lot of publishers will have a contracts person like me because the editor already has a lot of work to do. Um, and the editor is going to be your good news person. You want somebody (laughs) there who can say, we want to buy your book and we're going to give you this much money and we're going to give you these for royalties and we're going to sell it in these countries. And isn't that fantastic? Yes. And then for everything else, (laughs) they're going to pass you off to the contracts person. Um, Mm. because unfortunately a large part of my job is saying no, uh, (laughs) and editors don't want to say no. Editors are yes people. Um, and so there's a contracts manager that is there to say no, but also sometimes to say yes, it Mm -hmm. it makes my day so much better when I'm able to say yes. Um, but basically my job and the job of a contracts manager at a publisher is to go through the contract, uh, with your agent and just come to a final agreement on all the finer points of the contract. Um, a publishing contract is, put in place so that both parties, the author and the publisher, know what is expected of each of them and know what to do in the event that something unexpected comes up. I mean, you certainly can't plan for every circumstance, but in contracts, we try very hard (laughs) to plan for every circumstance. Um, So what happens is that after you accept your editor's offer, um, that's where I come in. 
And it really depends on, um, you know, a lot of agencies have existing boilerplates with publishers where they've already hammered out all these things back and forth. Um, and we've kind of agreed that from now on, all of our contracts between this agency and this publisher will move forward using the same set of terms so that we don't have to go back and rehash that out for every single contract that we do. So if you're part of an agency that has an existing boilerplate with your publisher, then things are going to move pretty quickly. Um, you'll get your contract in the mail to sign relatively soon um, if an existing boilerplate's in place, because for the most part, they might just be tweaking a thing here, a thing there, um, but there won't be a lot of hard work to do. If your agency doesn't have an existing boilerplate, that's when the contracting process uh, might get more involved mm -hmm. um, because your agent is really going to want to go through and hammer out all of those things um, and make sure that, you know, that they're really hitting all the points that they need to, that all their bases are covered. Okay, so that being the basic overview, and I guess if, if for instance, you're not agented mm -hmm. um, and you don't have... But, you know, and there are plenty of authors who do get book deals without agents. Yep. Um, and, you know, maybe you want to look at the contract yourself. And so what would you say are the most important clauses to look at in a contract as a writer? Okay. Um, even if you have an agent, you should read your contract. Yes. <laughs> even, if, even if your agent is fantastic, is the best agent in the business and does an amazing job, you should read your contract because yes. you are the one signing it and you are the one responsible for the terms of that contract and you need to know what they say. Um, so this is good information to have if you don't have an agent and then you really need to know what some of these important clauses are. Uh, but even if you have an agent, read your contract. I know that we all, you know, get the iTunes user agreements and we click agree <laughs> without ever reading it. I do it too. It's really terrible, but that's the kind of culture we live in where you just click and sign, click and sign, click and sign, and don't do that with your publishing contract. Please read it. Um, it really does matter and make a difference, and it's important that you know uh, what you're getting into. So some yes. of the main clauses that you want to pay attention to, um, for example, one of them is your rights of termination clause. The rights of termination spells out all the different ways that the agreement can come to an end and that your business relationship with your publisher will be over. Um some of the time that happens in a very natural way. Um, you know, the book has gone out of print and the rights revert back to you and you go on your way and the publisher goes their way. And that's how probably 90% of publishing contract contracts end is that things just run to their natural course. Um, the book has been published, it's been backlisted, it's had a nice, long, healthy sales life. Um, and now there's, you know, it's, it's run its course. Uh, and hopefully that's a, a many, many, many years from your sale. <laughs> um, you know, but eventually things come to an end. Um, sometimes things end for other reasons. Um, you know, sometimes something will come up where either the author cannot fulfill their obligations under the contract or the publisher cannot fulfill their obligations under the contract. And the rights of termination clause will spell out the different pathways uh, to take if one of those instances should arise. 
The most important thing you need to know is that your contract should have a rights of termination clause. It might be called something else. You know, um, apparently some people refer to them as sunset clauses. Um, there's all different, you know, there can be two separate ones, the publisher's rights of termination and the author's rights of termination, mm-hmm. or there can just be one combined clause that covers both parties. Um, you know, it can look different depending on the publishing contract that you have, but there should be one. Your publisher should not own the rights to your work forever and ever. Amen. Uh, there yes. should be there should be a way for you to get your rights back and for the contract to be terminated. So that's an important thing. You want to make sure that that exists and you want to read it carefully to make sure that you understand all the different ways that that clause can become activated. It, it, it is important to look at those clauses for just because there are and they and the contracts are pretty good about trying to outline various scenarios in which this might happen. You know, for example, the book goes out of print. Mm-hmm. Um, you should also look at to see what determines out of print because yes. that can be different from house to house. Mm-hmm. It's generally a specific threshold of sales. So yep. if your book is selling and print sales specifically, because ebook sales are a little bit different, mm-hmm. but print sales, your book is considered out of print. I don't know. I'll, I'll pick a number. If it's selling less than 200 copies a year. That would be considered out of print. So at that point, you would be within your rights to request your rights back, the rights mm-hmm. to publish your book back, and that would you know be under termination. Um, there, you know, so there are many scenarios outlined in the contract, and that's why it behooves you to read it mm-hmm. <laughs> from start to finish. Even if you agree with everything in it, at least now you know what's being covered. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's a big one. Um, so aside from a way out, <laughs> essentially, what are, <laughs> what are, what are some other clauses that you think are important for writers to take a look at more closely? Um, you should really pay attention to what constitutes delivery. Um, mm-hmm. in your contract, this can come under many different headings. Sometimes it's called delivery and acceptance. Um, sometimes it's just called acceptance, you know, sometimes it's lumped in with the editing clause. Um, so you'll want to take a look and find out where it is, but somewhere in your contract, there should be language about what you need to deliver to your publisher and whether or not the publisher can accept what you deliver. Um, Usually your contract will state that you are delivering X number of books. Sometimes you've sold one book at a time, maybe you've sold two or three. Uh, So it will specify how many books you're supposed to deliver. If there's multiple books, it will lay out a schedule for them. Even if there's only one book, actually, you'll have a delivery date. And by that date, you need to turn in your revised manuscript uh, to the publisher so that they can get started on production. So that date is important, and that date should be in your contract so that you know this is when your book is due. Um, Your delivery clauses will also talk about what exactly you need to turn in mm-hmm. to consider the manuscript. Is it just the manuscript? Is it a manuscript and a glossary? Is it uh, a manuscript and your author bio? Is it, you know, yes. if it's nonfiction, you might have an index that you need to provide, or you might have permissions um, for specific things that you utilize in the book. So or illustrations, illustrations, or, yeah, anything. These are what we, what they would call deliverables. Mm-hmm. in the contract. 
generally, if it's just a straight-up work of fiction, it's just going to be your manuscript. But yeah. sometimes, if you're working with nonfiction or an illustrated work or something with photographs, you know, those would all fall under the author's, del- the author's deliverables. Mm-hmm. And for things like... And you would see, because the, the publisher would say, the author is responsible for these. Because sometimes the publisher will front money for illustrations and, and other thing, permissions like that, but they will specify what the author is responsible mm-hmm. for. Right. If, for example, you're a children's book author and you are doing the text and the illustrations for your book, both of those things would be covered in your deliverables clause because those things would both be your responsibility. If you're doing a novel that has illustrations but you're not the illustrator, then you're not likely responsible for those things. But Mm -hmm. if you are, that clause will tell you what you're responsible for and when you need to turn it in by. That clause will also talk about um, what it means for the publisher to accept those things. So a lot of times when you have an advance for a book, the advance is split out into two, sometimes three payments. Can the first, be more than that. It can if, be if, more. Well, if you if have like a series, is bigger, yeah. yeah. Then and it if can the advance be, is really huge, I've seen it broken out to like on signing, delivery and acceptance, publication of hardcover, publication of paperback. Mm-hmm. So it can, and it can just go on depend, and on and yeah. on. <laughs> they but, could divvy out that money in as yeah. many increments as they want. But in general, the two that you'll almost always see, whether there's only two or ten different payouts, you'll always see one on signing for the most part, and you'll always see one on delivery and acceptance. So it's not enough for you to just turn in your book. That doesn't that alone doesn't generate the payment. When you turn in your book, your editor then has to read your book and accept it, which means that It contains the revisions that you and your editor discussed, that your editor feels that your book is ready to go on to the production stage of things. Um, And so the editor needs to actually formally accept your manuscript uh, in order for that second payment to be generated. And if the editor doesn't accept your manuscript, then the delivery clause will outline what happens next. Usually what happens is that the editor would say, hey, I have a couple of problems with this. Here are my problems. You need to fix them. And then it would be, you'd be given a certain amount of time according to the contract to make those corrections and turn your contract back in. Um, Similarly, your delivery date is written in there. That's the due date that you need to have everything turned in by. Life happens, you know, maybe something unexpected comes up, you, you know, um, have an unexpected move or, you know, some other chaos in your life that interrupts your writing time that means that you can't turn in your manuscript on time. When that happens, tell your editor as soon as humanly possible. (laughs) If you're, if you're going to be late turning in your manuscript, just tell your editor, I know it's scary. I know you feel guilty. I know that you feel stressed and ashamed and embarrassed that it's not going to be on time, but tell your editor sooner rather than later, because the sooner they know, the more they can do to help you. Your delivery clause in your contract will have something in there that states that the editor can extend the deadline under certain circumstances. And your editor is going to want to do that for you. They're human. They want to help you out. They want to get the best book that they can out of you. And if you just rush through it and turn it in and they can't accept it because it's not correct, then they're going to have to send it back to you anyway. So tell them right away, 
let them work with you to adjust a new delivery date. They know best what the needs of the production schedule are going to be and how late they can push Mm -hmm. that out to make it work. So the sooner you tell them, the better. And that information will be in your delivery clause too. So all in all, the delivery clause has a lot of information that's really important for you to understand um, and be aware of. And don't think too that that they're going to hold a gun to your head if you don't no. adhere to every aspect of this delivery clause or anything like that. Like, it, you know, obviously this is, you know, you, you write a manuscript, the editor loves it and sends you an editorial letter, um, and you revise it and send it back and she sends you more revisions or he sends you more revisions and you're going to work on it until it's final, mm-hmm. um, And then that's usually when the editor says, I accept this manuscript. So it's not quite so, you know, hard as as it might sound in the contract, but those are really just in place so that the editing process doesn't extend forever. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some horror stories that I've heard of, too, that the editing just went on for like 18 months. Oh, God. You know, and it just, you know, and you should be able to, to look at your contract and there should be time limits not just not just deadlines for you but deadlines for the publishing house as well Mm -hmm. about how long it takes them to get your editorial letters back to you all that sort of stuff and again that's just there if they don't adhere to it you Mm -hmm. know and obviously as as kelly said everyone is human you know things are going to happen they may be getting late because some catastrophe happened or you know obviously you know you try to keep the lines of communication as open as possible between yourself and your editor and publisher and really any of these sort of scary clauses won't be put into effect it's but they're there to protect you and also to protect the the publisher so Mm -hmm. um so aside from delivery uh what are some of the other important clauses uh, that you think that they should, that writers should take a closer look at. Mm-hmm. So these next two clauses kind of go hand in hand, and they are the option clause and the non compete clause. The option clause is pretty standard in publishing, and it exists so that the publisher can develop an ongoing relationship with writers. So basically, what it will say is the publisher wants to get the first look at the next non-contracted book that you write. So if you're only contracted for one book with the publisher, then that means that the next book that you write, the publisher wants the opportunity to see it first and make an offer before anyone else gets to see it. Now, if the publisher makes an offer, you don't have to accept. You're not contractually obligated to publish that next book with them because in that case, then you would have been contracted for two books. (laughs) This is just basically... The publisher, it's a courtesy, really. It's a courtesy. They're, esta- they're investing in you. They want to establish working relationships with you. They want the chance to have the first, um, the first look at your next book. Sometimes, um, if it's, you know, usually it'll be really broad. They'll want to take the next look at, you know, anything that you've written. Um, 
but a lot of times authors will want to narrow that down a little bit because it frees them up. So they might say the option book is for my next YA fantasy novel, right. not just the next novel that I write. Um, or sometimes it can be even narrower. It can be the option clause is for my next YA fantasy novel using the same characters or right. setting that exists in the contracted novel. Um, so they can be very, very broad or they can be very, very narrow depending. Um, and it's, you know, again, it does not obligate you to go with that publisher again. If they make an offer, you don't have to accept it. You can say, thanks, but I'd like to look elsewhere. Um, but it is, as JJ said, a courtesy. It is the publisher is invested in you. They want to take the first crack at your next book. The clause that kind of dovetails off of that one is your non-compete clause. Read your non-compete clause. If you don't read anything else in your contract, yeah. read your non-compete clause because they vary wildly from house to house. Um, there are all kinds of different things that can be in there uh, that can drastically affect you, the writer, and what you are contractually allowed to do with your writing. And... Uh, that's something that you need to be aware of. Um, so basically, in general, what a non-compete clause is for is so that you don't go out and sell a substantially similar work that will create a competing product in the marketplace that would adversely affect sales of your current book contracted with your publisher. So that is the intention behind the clause. It's to protect the publisher's investment, to protect their sales, to make sure that you don't go out one day and sell, you know, a Snow White fantasy space retelling to that publisher and then tomorrow go out and sell a Snow White fantasy space retelling to a different publisher because then there are two Snow White fantasy space retellings that you have written that are going to be in the marketplace and they're going to compete and sales of both will suffer as a result. It can be more complicated than that. Yes. Your, your non-compete can get a lot more restrictive and a lot more detailed than that. Your non-compete could say things like you cannot share writing related to the contracted work on your personal blog. We all like to blog about our works in progress and your non-compete clause might say that you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so you should really read it and see and whether or not that's allowed. Also, it's, it can also preclude you. And I know some authors who are, uh, who write novels that are traditionally published and also write like short stories mm -hmm. set in the same universe. Yep. Now, sometimes the non-compete clause will specify you cannot use your characters or setting or place from this work or this world that you've created that you cannot mm -hmm. use that for any other work. Mm -hmm. So read very, very carefully. And I mean, sometimes you can push back on this and that. Yes. Yep. Your agent should be able to narrow the language down specifically. And here on the non-compete clause and really on the option clauses too, you want to be as narrow and as specific as possible to give yep. you the most opportunities. So yep. for example, in your option clause, they should say, there should also be 
language there about how long it takes your publisher to get back to you with an offer. Mm-hmm. That's Usually it's, it's 30 to 60 days to respond yes. to an option and clause. So there should be a limit to that. Um, and your non-compete, you can include language that says the option book shall not con- count as competition. As competitive work, yes. Because let's say you write uh, the next book in your series and the publisher has the option on it. And they read it and they make an offer and you decide, you know what, I, I appreciate everything you've done for me, but I really want to go somewhere else and I want to shop this book around and see what happens when I take it to the marketplace. Um, and then your publisher says, oh, well, you can't because then it would be considered competition. So you don't have to go with our deal, but you can't send it to anyone else. <laughs> so you can have language in there that says if the publisher, you know, does not acquire the option book for any reason, even if they make an offer and you decline, uh, it won't be considered competition so that you're free to take it elsewhere. So there's a lot of modifying and negotiating that you can do in those clauses to better protect your rights. And also, you know, don't just assume either that the option and the non-compete are out to screw you. They're not. Publishers are not, you know, trying to ruin your life and suck every last morsel out of you. Um, Publishers really do best when their authors are happy, when their authors are on Twitter talking about what an amazing publishing experience they've had (laughs) and how wonderful it is. You know, publishers want their writers to be so, so happy with their business partnership. So I don't say these things to make you feel like, oh my God, my publisher's out to screw me because that's not the case. I'm telling you these things because you need to read these in case your contract is more restrictive than you assume. You need to be aware of that and you need to do what you can to open it up a little bit to give yourself more freedom and more creative control. Yes, it's it's really to protect you. It's not to scare you. It's not that they're out to get you, but it's, you should read your contracts because you should know what you're getting into just Mm -hmm. in general. You should just know what you're getting into. So if something, you know, likely it's not going to, but just in case something comes up, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in the process of writing your book or, um, in, in say you have like a novella with the same characters or, um, minor characters in your universe and you want to self-publish that. Um, you know, your non-compete clause may allow you to do that or it may not allow you to do that. So it's something that you want to look at pretty carefully. Um, so that, that's pretty important. Um, so I think that more or less covers our major important clauses that Mm -hmm. I think writers should look at first. It's true. Uh, I would argue (laughs) that they're all important, but this is what I do. This is what I do. But in terms of like a quick and dirty, what do I need to look at in my contract? Those are some definitely the highlights. You should always pay attention to those things. Well, I think because, you know, as, as writers, we get excited about all the, the things that we think, all the things that we see rather, you know, like the marketing, the publicity, the covers, all that sort of stuff. We see that and we want to see contract language pertaining to that, but we don't actually think about the business aspect mm-hmm. of publishing necessarily. Right. And those, those clauses are really about the business and your career as a whole. Mm-hmm. So you really want to pay attention to those things. 
So those are the kind of the career clauses, but what about some fun stuff? Is there some fun stuff, fun stuff we can negotiate? <laughs> there is some fun stuff that you can negotiate for sure. Um, again, like JJ just said, a lot of the fun stuff doesn't belong in the contract. So, you know, you can't, you can't include something in the contract that a party cannot guarantee. Um, if we, can't guarantee something it we can't put it in the contract um because you need to have a way to be able to deliver on everything that's in there in every eventuality um but there are some things that you can put in there as a writer um to better your involvement in the publication of your book uh and to again give you a little bit more creative control over things um for example you might think that because it's your book you get to choose what the title is, <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> your publisher will always have the final say in what your title is. Unfortunately, it has to come down to somebody. If you're going 10 rounds and can't decide, there has to be a person to make the final call. That person is going to be the publisher. They're well, the ones investing in the book. Yes. And the, the final say is going to go to them. You can have language that says things like consultation. Exactly. And that's or, what you should do. Yeah. You should have consultation language on your title. Now, most of the time, again, publishers want their authors to be happy. So publishers are probably going to consult with you on the title anyway. And the cover. This applies for both the title and the cover of your book. Um, they're probably going to talk to you about it the whole way through anyway. But you can guarantee that. By putting that language in your contract, uh, having it state that the author shall have meaningful cons consultation with the publisher in regards to title and cover. And that means that, you know, as the cover is going through the design process, they'll send you mock-ups, they'll get your feedback, they'll listen to what you have to say, and they really will listen because, again, they really do want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so your input is important. It means a lot when authors have cover reveals on blogs and they're so excited to talk about how gorgeous their cover is. You know, you don't want anyone to go on a blog and say, oh my God, I hate the cover of my book. <laughs> so, so publishers do want, you know, want to have that collaborative relationship but you can guarantee that it happens by putting that language in your contract. Yes. And it, it's rare. I mean, I obviously there are horror stories where somebody just goes online one day and finds the cover of their book. But that is very rare most of the time. And when I was an editor, I usually asked, you know, before we went into design meetings. I mean, I would have ideas for what I thought the co what cover might look good. Um, cover mock-ups and things like that and I am an artist as well so sometimes I would mock them up myself but you know the, the final covers are always left to the design department but I would always ask my my authors as well like so send me examples of covers that you like mm -hmm. and you know just so I can print them out go to the design meeting show the designers these are the types of covers the authors like you know, maybe try this direction about, you know, this idea and they'll come back with a couple of mock-ups. It's not like it's just one and done. It's not like mm -hmm. they go and come up with a cover concept and say like, this is the final cover. That's not true. Like, you know, like editing your manuscript, there are a couple of stages, you know, they'll come up with a different concept and the good designers always come up with a couple of different ones. 
um, and they'll send, you know, three or four cover concepts to the author and agent and editor and, you know, ask, what do you think? And then everybody weighs in, you know, some will like option A, some will like option B. And, you know, you sort of narrow that process down with everybody's input. So it's not mm -hmm. like they're going to cut you out of the process altogether. But, you know, if it comes down and, you know, obviously they want mutual consensus more than not. But if it comes down to it, you know, the publisher knows the market. They know what sort of covers sell or they know specifically what Barnes & Noble thinks sells in a cover. <laughs> yes. What Barnes and Noble um, thinks sells matters quite a lot. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't think that just one company could have so much influence, but it really does. I know a cover that was changed at the last possible second because Barnes and Noble decided, you know what? Mm, we decided we're not going to really buy any. We don't like the cover. And there was total chaos and panic to get a new cover put on so that Barnes and Noble would take some. Now it was for the better because the second cover was actually superior to the original cover. So it all worked out and it was great. But I mean, uh, things can happen with your cover at the very last second. Yes. And just to explain a little bit, I mean, bar the reason Barnes and Noble wields so much power is because they're the biggest chain now that's left mm -hmm. that has physical bookstore space. So, you know, and they have limited physical space. So if they don't like your cover or your title, because Barnes & Noble has a lot of power over that too, yeah, they may just say, you know what, we're only going to take a couple thousand copies of this book, mm -hmm. if at all. So, you know, and not selling in Barnes & Noble can hurt your sales. So it is in the publisher and the author's best interest, even if you love this previous cover, just to maybe go back to the drawing board and say, okay, let's see if we can kind of come up with something that Barnes & Noble loves as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it, you know, yes, the final say technically rests with your publisher, but <laughs> a lot of people will have opinions. A lot of yes. people, the buyer yes. at Amazon will probably have an opinion. The buyer at Barnes and Noble, the buyers mm -hmm. at Indies will always uh, also have opinions as well. And, you know, the publisher has to always weigh that against the decisions that they make. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of covers and titles and things like that. And, um, and and you want to get those things right. That's that's the other thing. If in a in a store, you walk into a bookstore, the things that catch people's eyes first is always the cover, mm -hmm. and then the title, and then the first five pages. Actually, mm -hmm. it'd probably be cover, title, back blurb, and yep. then the first five pages. Yep. Um, in that order, when people go shopping for books, so these are pretty important. I know. I feel like we could have a whole separate podcast on judging books by their covers and yes. everything that goes into that. <laughs> because I can think of books that I have honestly been in the store and picked up on the strength of their cover that I would not have otherwise picked up. Um, so maybe that's a future podcast topic. Writing that down, covers. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything else in the contracts world that you want to cover? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of general things. In short, you really, you just have to go through and you have to read it. And even if you have an agent, 
Especially if you have an agent, because if you have an agent, then you have someone at your disposal who knows what it all means. And, and so you can you, ask questions. You can read it yourself and say, hey, agent, I don't understand what this means. Could you let me know? And your agent will be able to tell you. Um, and if you don't have an agent, then there's a lot of resources for you online. You can do a little bit of research. You can talk to some other authors. You can kind of find out what's standard. Um, but you should really read it. I know it can seem daunting. It can seem long. It can seem like it's full of legal jargon and technical mumbo jumbo about stuff that will never come to pass. Like there's a force major contract in there. Yes. Uh, Force major, um, clause rather. And basically that clause is like, it it will literally sometimes say acts of God. It will say, (laughs) you know, if, if there is a natural disaster that destroys the warehouse, if there is, you know, something beyond anyone's control of an act of God that came down and prevented this book from being published, (laughs) you know, it's nobody's fault and everyone's free and clear. They, they will literally say that in the contract to prepare for any kind of eventuality. Um, so I know that it seems like a lot of stuff that's irrelevant, that doesn't matter, that will never happen. And hopefully it won't. You know, the best contracts are the ones that never get pulled out of the drawer again after they've been signed. Nobody ever needs to look at them. They never get called into question. No one ever has a problem or an issue and needs to pull it out and find out what to do next. But in case there is an issue of any kind, big, small, whatever, because a lot of the things are small, they're little hiccups, they're little tiny things that are easily fixed. And the contract is there to tell everybody how to fix those things. Um, it's there for your protection. It's there for the publisher's protection. And I can't stress enough how important it is that you read it. I have heard so many sad, sad, tragic stories from people who have signed a bad contract with a scam publisher who, you know, was only going to rip them off ever. And this is not, you know, these are not publishers that you've ever heard of, but they're small (laughs) little predatory companies that find poor unsuspecting people and take advantage of them um, and make them sign truly horrific, horrible things that you can't unsign. When you sign a contract, you can't unsign it. Um, You know, that's it. You agreed to it and that's enforceable by law. And I feel like if people could put aside for just a moment their initial thrill and excitement over the fact that they have a book publishing contract and first take a minute to read it, they could spare themselves some heartache. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, but, and again, regular publishers, all the big publishers that you've heard of, all the wonderful independent publishers throughout the country that you've heard of, they're, they're not out to screw you. They're really not. And their contracts managers are people like me who, uh, are happy to hear your requests and really want to do everything that we can to make you happy. I mean, there's some things that I can't do because I am a contracts manager for a publisher. My job is to protect the publisher's interests. And sometimes I have to say, no, I'm so sorry. I can't accommodate you on that request. But whenever I'm able to say yes, whenever I'm able to make a change that makes things better for the author, that makes the author more comfortable with what they're signing, then I'm so happy to do it. Um, Because again, I want you to be happy. The publisher wants you to be happy. You want you to be happy. (laughs) We all want it to be good. Um, So, you know, it's 
contracts don't have to be scary. They don't have to be boring. They can really be uh, a great and important tool for you and for your publisher. And you should read it. If I ever find out that anyone has listened to this episode (laughs) of our podcast and has not from this point on read all of their contracts, I will be sincerely, sincerely upset. I will come find you and I will lecture you. I don't know about coming to find you. I'm not a stalker. I don't know. That was a little creepy, but you know, I mean it. I mean it. It matters. You'll just be really disappointed in them. I will. I, I do a really good mom disappointed finger waggle here. I've started getting a lot of practice. So, so yeah. So read your contract and, uh, and yeah, and take control, take creative control of your work and your career and think about it that way. Yeah. Don't, I mean, yes, it is exciting to have a book deal, but don't be so excited that you don't think about it. You don't, you just sign it away. This is your career. This is, you know, you don't want, you know, if you were starting a new job and you, you know, it sounds great and everything, but over the course of time, you realize you're not happy about the way your boss, you know, is treating you or things like that. You, you want to know what protections you have. And, you know, those are the worst case scenarios. Like, you know, you enter into a book contract and you're not happy with the way things are turning out, then your contract is what's going to protect you. It's, it's going to give you the way out. It's going to tell you what ways you can resolve problems or issues and things like that. So it is, it is pretty important. Just, you know, squee about your, your book deal for, you know, (laughs) about 10 minutes, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. And then just take a deep breath and calm down and take a look at that contract. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then as soon as you sign it and you send it off in the mail, then have some champagne or your beverage of choice. Right. Or take um, a picture of you signing your contract mm-hmm. with happy. Yes. You know, a lot of people do do that, you know, mm-hmm. to commemorate. This is their deal. They're signing it. It's really exciting. So it's, it's very important. It's not dry and boring. Um, and you know, at least for me and Kelly knows when I got my contract and I was like, Oh, reading all the different clauses and, mm-hmm. um, cause, I, I mean, int- like, obviously I know what contracts look like having been an, an editor, but I was just curious to see what the boilerplate with my agency looked like <laughs> as well. I was like, Oh, what are the differences here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's really, it's really yeah. great. And we can talk in depth more about specific things in contracts later on. Um, I'll be doing some blogging about it on pub crawl. Uh, we can have podcasts about more specific things later if anyone's interested um so let us know if you have more contract questions and want us to kind of delve a little bit deeper rather than just this overview all right well then let's move on so have you been working on anything fun creative exciting oh you know i i honestly don't think that i have um i just recently have started this new position with this new company so it's kind of been all about learning the ropes uh, (laughs) um and and figuring that kind of stuff out so um my creative pursuits have kind of been on hold for the last week or two uh but i'm hoping to get back to it pretty soon what about you um sort of all over the place i (laughs) kind well i i am plugging away at my middle grade as per usual. It is really hard. Middle grade is really hard. Just letting you guys know. Um, and it, you know, Philip Pullman once said that children have an extremely fine bullshit meter. Mm. 
and that writing for children is one of the hardest things you can do because you can lose their interest like that so quick. Um, so a lot of the sort of, and, and, and my own personal style when it comes to writing is to be very uh, prosaic, very wordy, very long, uh, which is not great in middle grade, obviously. And, you know, a lot of interior thought, like, I was looking at some of my stuff and I was like, well, a lot of this is just like people sitting in a room having feelings like, and yeah. not doing mm-hmm. anything. And you can't get away with that in, in middle grade in particular. I mean, this is for, you know, eight to 12 year olds. And so I, you know, I was trying to write the first couple of chapters of my book and I was just kept going back and stripping out all the feelings <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not not necessarily the feelings. I mean, I don't want to say it like that, but just but the ruminations. The, on, yeah, the, the interior thought process. You know, in a in a YA novel, you know, you're crossing the street and you're thinking about, oh, you know, I'm waiting for the bus and maybe there's a cute boy in the bus and what does he feel about me and da da da. da. And you're in a middle grade novel and you're waiting for the bus and you're you know it, you don't really think about that until the bus shows up and maybe someone gets run over and you know like. There's a very big difference in the sort of interior life of a middle grade character and kind of any other age group. So, and I'm kind of sitting there, and weirdly, I've been reading a lot of Hemingway. I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of Ernest Hemingway, but he is very <laughs> concise. Oh, yes. And he's very concise. His sentence structure is simple, mm-hmm. but not simplistic. And there's a lot of emotional resonance in his work uh, that doesn't rely on the sort of interior thought of the mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, Hemingway wrote one of the best closing lines of a novel ever. Which one? Isn't it pretty to think so from the sun also rises? Ah, oh, yes. That's the best last line. And I just spoiled it for everyone <laughs> who hasn't read it. You should read that book. I know that it doesn't really make a lot of sense out of context, but yeah. oh, it's but a it's fantastic closing line. But yes, he does have this really, um, spare he's spare yes it is that's exactly the word but it's not uh it's not dry or boring yes mm-hmm. we're just playing fill in the blank you're just gonna yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is good because i'm not words are not coming to my mind um but it's interesting that you're reading him because i do think that's probably the most polar opposite writer from the way that you write exactly right that i could think of so that's interesting that that you're in the midst of that right now. Has your opinion about him changed now that you're rereading him? Um, actually, yeah. Because I'm right now, I'm reading For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm-hmm. And the one that we had read, and I think I just read it, I read this for school, and I think I read it at the wrong time, was A Farewell yeah. to Arms. Yeah. And I actually think it's pretty great. And I think, and I recognize its literary merit, but I just didn't read it at the right time in my life, I think, mm-hmm. to appreciate it. And that's kind of the sad thing about school sometimes is that mm-hmm. you often read books before you're ready to appreciate how great they are. This is another podcast topic. It is another podcast topic. <laughs> the, the books that we read at the wrong time in our lives. <laughs> oh, there's so many of those. I know, I know. Um, but yeah, no, I'm... It, and I'm also looking at it not from a story perspective because a lot of the stories that he tends to write about are just not my thing in general. He's very masculine in in, in a way that I'm not particularly interested in reading about. 
Um, but I'm looking or I, I'm reading his stuff with more of a craft perspective, which I didn't when I first read him. And I do appreciate he he's very spare, but in a very elegant way. And and that's very, very hard. I think that's a lot harder to do than to be wordy and purple and florid and this, the mm-hmm. sort of way that I naturally tend to write, which is just to kind of put it all on the page. But he's not. And there's just it's a lot of subtlety there that I think for middle grade in particular, like kids can pick up on a lot of subtle things mm-hmm. that you don't have to spell it out for them. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm doing research on that front and also trying to participate in Inktober. <laughs> um, yes. Where for artists, like I do draw. So, um, you, Inktober is you just draw things in ink rather than in pencil or in paint or on the computer. You're, you're drawing things in ink. So I've Never consistently done this, but this month I was like, I'm going to try and at least get mm-hmm. more than like one or two Inktober sketches out. So um, I usually post them on Instagram <laughs> if anybody wants to take a look at those. But that's kind of my creative endeavors thus far. And nice. Have you been reading anything interesting? <sighs> <laughs> the number one book that I have read over and over and over and over over this week is called Duck Sock Hop by Jane Kohuth, <laughs> illustrated by Jane Porter. It is a picture book. <laughs> I have a 20-month-old daughter, Penelope, who is a redhead and who definitely uh, lends, uh, lends validity to the idea that redheads are fiery and sassy. <laughs> She's a little sassafras, uh, but we're reading Duck Sock Hop right now. And it's fantastic. Um, anyone out there who spends a lot of children or is a parent, uh, spends a lot of children, <laughs> spends, uh, hopefully you're not spending children. They're, they're not a valid currency. Um, spends time with children. Um, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you hang out with your nieces and nephews a lot, whatever. Um, and you've read a lot of picture books. Maybe you just really like picture books. Um, I actually went through a phase in my twenties where I just was really into picture books for some reason. Um, also very hard to write. Just so, yes, so very hard to write. So hard to write a quality one, mm-hmm. as you'll know, because if you're like me, you've read a lot of picture books, and a lot of them are really, really terrible. I will not name the title, but there's a book that my daughter had that she loved, and we read it over and over and over again, and I despised this book <laughs> with every fiber of my being, and the cat. Um, ha- had a hairball on the cover of the book when it was left out one night, and I felt not an ounce of sadness when I had to put that book in the trash. And so, <laughs> Derp didn't like it either. No, Derp is our cat, Derpalug. Uh, you can you, <laughs> you can ask me about that one. I'll I'll explain that at some point. But um, but Duck Sock Hop by Jane Kohuth with illustrations by Jane Porter is fan. Fantastic. The writing is so nimble. Um, there's rhythm and rhyme, and it's all delightful and wonderful and unexpected. It feels really fresh and original. Even though I've read it at least 20 times this week, I'm not sick of it yet. Every time I read it, I really enjoy it. Um, so I know that maybe that's not necessarily what uh, what our listeners are looking for in terms of you know what we're reading, but that is definitely the book that I've read the most recently, um, and I really do love it. 
I am also still, 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 still reading uh, Queen of Shadows by Sarah J. Moss. Um, Like I said, I've started this new job and there's all kinds of other stuff going on in life right now. So I'm literally snatching my reading time in like 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. And it's a long book. So it's taking me a while to get through, but I'm toward the very end now. I only have about a quarter left um, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. So maybe I need to find a little, a little place where I can discuss all this stuff that's going on because it's, there's so much stuff going on. Oh my God. It's killing me. It's killing me. Um, it always kills me when I get to the end of them. I'm always like, no, 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 there's gotta be more left. There's gotta be more pages left. (laughs) I know those are, they, I really, I love those books. And I think you're actually the one who recommended them uh, to me. And I'm glad because I would not have found them on my own. Um, it's, it's not the kind of thing that would have crossed my radar. And so I'm so grateful for the recommendation because I really love them. Uh, so I'm excited to finish this one up and see, uh, see what happens next. Yeah. Let's see. What am I reading? I, oh, I finished Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho. Um, it is, it's, it's quite delightful. It It's kind of the only, not the only word. The first word that comes to mind is it's just delightful. It's a, it's a Regency pastiche. Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's like a kind of, I don't know if you know the author Georgette Heyer. Mm-hmm. She wrote a lot of Regency romances and it actually reads a lot like Georgette Heyer with magic. Um, and I, I mean, there, there are things I really, I, you know, I had it recommended to me because I was a fan of Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite books of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, when is that it, coming out? Aren't they doing a TV oh, it's show already or a miniseries? The, the BBC, the BBC miniseries. Oh really? I missed yeah. it. Oh, I bought it on iTunes. Um, okay. Well, I guess I have to go check that out anyway. <laughs> I, I have thoughts about that too, <laughs> which we can talk about later. Um, <clears throat> just funny thing though, the guy who plays uh, Strange looks nothing like how I imagine Strange to look like, but he played Miss Trenchbull on Matilda, and that was like the thing that blew my mind. I was like, "You are Miss Trenchbull? That's kind of the greatest thing ever." Um, but anyway, the the Sorcerer to the Crown was recommended to me because you know Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is also a Regency pastiche. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's set during the Napoleonic Wars with magic. But those book, these two books are very, very different in tone, mostly. I mean, yes, the, the writing style is a throwback to, to that era. Um, there are definitely words in Sorcerer to the Crown that I'd never heard of before because they were uh-huh. so obsolete that I was like, what does this mean? Like, there's a word like stoikidoidal or something like that, that I was like, I'd have no idea what this word means. And I know the meanings of a lot of words, but I was <laughs> like, I've never, I've never heard of this before. And in particular, my diction's pretty old fashioned because I read mostly 19th century fiction. So, um, but someone also said, Oh, it's like a Regency romance. And I was like, yeah, you know what it is. It's, it's a lot more, I think, like Georgette Heyer than it is like Susanna Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they both had magic in them, but I, I really did enjoy it in the sort of Diana Wynne Jones kind of way. If you guys mm-hmm. like Diana Wynne Jones, I think you might, we might really enjoy it. The other thing I really liked about it, and I think it comes through 
So the main characters are not white. So this is Regency-era England. The two protagonists, one is a black man. He's the Sorcerer Royal. And then the other one is a, is a woman named Prunella Gentleman. And she is mixed race. We're not entirely sure what she's mixed with. It's likely she's East Indian. I think her father was described as traveling in Calcutta. Um, and I And I liked that so much. The author herself, I think she's uh, Malaysian. She's Malaysian living in England. Mm-hmm. And so she writes about people of color in history in the way that I like to, the way, you know, because I grew up reading Austin and Bronte and all the sort of great works of Western literature. And of course, there isn't a single character unless they're servants or, you know, tragic figures of some kind um, no character that is going to look like me. So I really appreciated that aspect of this book, that these characters were the main characters. But yeah, having having people of color in, in the sort of like historical, like particularly English historical, like growing up I read a lot of Susan Cooper, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Darkest Rising series, and it'd be really great if one of those kids was, you know, not white. Right. <laughs> So I, I really appreciated that. I, I, I thought that was a, a great aspect of it. And if you guys like Regency romances, then I would highly recommend The Sorcerer to the Crown. Um, so, and I have bought a lot of books. Um, I bought today, I went to Charlotte. Some of my friends are having an author event. And I bought a middle grade novel called The League of Seven by Alan Gratz. And it's kind of this like, steampunky adventure and I thought that'd be fun to read especially as I I need to know how other people middle grade (laughs) (laughs) it's really hard you guys it's really hard it is a hard uh... it it is honestly I think like the hardest hardest category to write at least that I've attempted because I've attempted young adult adult and now middle grade and middle grade is thus far definitely the hardest I think Mm -hmm. so and uh, oh, and I saw The Martian last night. <gasps> oh, I'm so jealous. Was it good? <laughs> it was good. I okay. it was it was good. It's funny, like weirdly, I miss the science. I mean, not that the yeah. science isn't in there, but it's such like survival porn in the book in a way. You know, like, yes. Another book I really loved as a kid was My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead mm-hmm. George. And all the little minute details of how he, like, carved out the heart of this tree with, like, fire and his axe and, like, found a falcon. Like, all the little details, like, all the little details of how he survived on Mars. Like, all the science bits. Like, it's there, but they're obviously showing it to you and not telling it to you and not right. explaining it to you the same way. Like, I actually kind of miss that. But it's good. It's it's funny and it was fun. It was highly entertaining. Shuetel Ejiofor is in it and he's a very attractive man, so I'm not <laughs> gonna complain about that either. <laughs> Who does he play? He plays Venket Kapoor. Um, oh yeah. Well, apparently originally they were gonna get a big Bollywood actor to play Venkat Kapoor because uh-huh. he's Indian in the book and Shuetel Ejiofor is uh, black. And they just, I guess, contract-wise, it didn't happen. So he was kind of the biggest name they were able to get at the last minute. And so he's now Vincent Kapoor. Mm. Um, And they kind of sort of explain it like he's like, oh, yeah, my dad was Hindu and my mom was Baptist. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
We'll go with it. Oh, all right, that's fine. <laughs> so that's that's what I've been enjoying lately. <laughs> and um, so, do we have any other recommendations? We have any off off many recommendations aside from books and movies that we've been consuming. Any off menu recommendations that I am enjoying? Oh my goodness. Well, we've already discussed Hamilton, which is of course the thing that I'm still uh yeah, constantly same. listening to at every possible turn. Still obsessed with it. Still obsessed with Hamilton that is unlikely to change um mm-hmm. anytime soon. Off menu recommendations, you know? Um I don't think I have anything new this week. I think just listen to what I liked last week and that is pretty much still yeah, still I, the same. I have to agree with you. I think I, because Hamilton has taken over so much of my life right now, yeah. that I kind of don't have room in my life for anything else. Mm-hmm. No, I really, I really would agree. I haven't listened to anything else really. I haven't been talking about anything else really. I guess, I guess I did download a new game for my phone, which I play <laughs> on the bus in the morning while I'm listening to Hamilton. <laughs> Uh, and that's Alpha Bear. If you like word games and Scrabble type stuff, it's another variation of that with cute little bear graphics. So, I mean, I've been doing that. But, uh, yeah, Hamilton is pretty much really, really the thing that uh, that we've been doing lately. David and I did just watch season one of Heroes again. Because he had never seen it before. Yeah. He had never seen it before. And he is on a really big comic book kick right now. Mm. And he actually does not have a lot of experience with comic books. I have read far more comic books than he has. And I've read really weird comic books, guys. I read, like, something like 500 issues of Spawn. You did? (laughs) Yes. I I know a (laughs) lot about Spawn. And, like, other very strange um, comic books. So, um he has kind of started getting more into comics in general. And we watched daredevil on Netflix, uh, several weeks ago and he was still in a comics mood and he'd never seen season one of heroes. So we just sat down and we watched the whole thing. Um, and I loved, I loved heroes in season one. And then it had its fall from grace as we all know. And apparently it came back and it's, it's on air right now in like a new, I don't know. Yeah, I if think it's, it's like Heroes Reborn. Maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I we haven't watched it, and I truthfully don't know if I'm going to watch it. I don't really think I have the bandwidth to invest in something like that. But we watched season one again, and it was really interesting. It's a show that I think actually does better in the weekly format. It's not. It's. I think the flaws are more. Uh, perceptible when you binge watch it and you watch a bunch of episodes mm. in a row. Mm. I think it really did a lot better when I was watching it week to week to week. Um, in general, it did hold up pretty well though, um, which was kind of surprising for me, but I do not think we're going to go on to season two. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to quit <laughs> while we're ahead and, and stop now. Well, so what comic books are David reading right now? He is reading a whole bunch of stuff. So my friend, Mike, 
was my comic guru back in the day uh, and gave me all those episodes of Spawn and um, all the other comics that I got into. Fables was another one that I read for mm, a really long Fables time. Really um, I've read, you know, a whole bunch of X-Men, epi- um, X-Men comics and, and other things, but everything that I've read essentially uh, was through my friend Mike. So, hey, Mike. Um, thank you. Um <laughs> Daredevil, he gave me Daredevil to read and stuff like that. And so now Mike has uh, moved on and has become David's comic guru. So <laughs> I'm not sure what he's reading. I think he, I think Mike just gave him some Spider-Man. So I think he read some Spider-Man. Um, I'm not sure in which incarnation. I haven't read any Spider-Man in years and there's a million say, different. How recent is it Mike Morales or is it still yeah, Peter Parker? I, I don't think... He's reading Mike Morales yet. I think he's reading Peter Parker. David is. I think. I don't know. Um, So I think some of that. And I think he's reading some Daredevil too. But I think he's reading some older Daredevil. I don't really know what's going on with that. But um, but yeah, comics. I love comics. It took me a really long time to learn how to read them. I when my friend Mike back in high school first started giving me comics to read I had to read each comic book three times the first time I read it through I just read the words the second time I read it through I only looked at the pictures and the final time I read it through I managed to somehow do both at once but it was a really difficult medium for me to read and comprehend it's I could understand reading words on a page and I could understand watching images like on tv or a movie but like somehow combining those things the static images with the words on the page like broke my brain and I couldn't do it <laughs> and I had to read each issue three times before I could finally understand fully you know what was happening um I think I've since gotten to a point where I can read a comic book now but it was it was honestly a learning process for me which was really strange um, I don't know if anybody else has had that experience or not but yeah well I guess because when I was little I drew a lot of cartoons like comic strips mm-hmm. that's that's instead of writing in a journal that's actually what I did was I drew comic strips like it's my life and then I apparently had an alter ego named Vita Girl um <laughs> I still have these somewhere. Uh, I have to look them up. But I this do... is a blog post. This is yes. a blog post. This is this is JJ's juvenilia. So for a very long time, and my dad actually encouraged me for a very long time to go into comics and like. My dad is a huge reader of you know Doonesbury, um, or Bloom County and things like that. Like he uh, did like the Sunday Funnies. It was our ritual when I was younger, and then I didn't really read comics until I was probably in college, actually. Um, my family was not really into the comics thing. I was the nerdiest one in my family. Um, then I got to, to college and I was like, my tribe, all the other (laughs) nerds are here. (laughs) Um, no, that's a lot. I I read a lot of manga in high school. Actually, I read, um, this is sort of like when manga was kind of making its thing. Like I read Sailor Moon, the really bad version of the translated manga, um, where they actually flipped the art backward as well. So it read from like American style, terrible. Uh, I still have those. And I also have the new reissues of the Sailor Moon manga that they've retranslated and, and kept the art the correct way. Um, there was also a, I read Fushigi Yugi and there was another one that I don't know if ever got translated into English, but I read it in Korean. It was originally a Japanese manga, but I read it in Korean. 
uh, Kamikaze Kaito Janne, which is like loosely translates to like divine wind thief gene, but she, hmm. it's about this girl who, um, is a gymnast and, you know, has like her, n- her typical like high school problems and her superhero alter ego is the reincarnation of Joan of Arc and she goes around, <laughs> yep, <laughs> and she goes around and she like, the premise is like people with beautiful souls and artists like put their souls and in, in whatever into the artwork and that opens them up to like either angelic or demonic influences and so John is that's how it's pronounced anyway but Jean goes in she you know takes these works of art and she quote steals them um mm-hmm. she you know releases the soul from whatever demonic influence there was um so she's sort of known as this art thief essentially um it was long and complicated and it had like a lot of like reincarnated lives and now I kind of want to reread them <laughs> like, I kind of want to read them now I know I'm trying to think too it's like if they were ever translated into English I don't know if they were if they if you could read Korean I'd give them to you but like <laughs> and then I didn't get into western comics until college and the first one of course I read was Sandman mm. oh my god um, which I think is like every girl's gateway comic book is is sandman maybe by neil gaiman i know he's joked it's like the it's like a sexually yeah. transmitted comic because it's like all these people you know like you know you'd be giving it to whoever you were <laughs> sleeping with at the time you're like oh you have to read these <laughs> sadly i i did get so, a lot of comics this, by from my ex-boyfriend who i was sleeping with at the time was uh yeah whatever that's a whole nother thing <laughs> that we don't need to get into Yes, comics as STDs. (laughs) Yes, comics as STDs. So, I I mean, I've fallen off the the bandwagon. I I know I should read Saga. I've been meaning to read Saga for a long time. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, Miss Marvel, the new Miss Marvel with Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel. I really have been hearing a lot of great Mm -hmm. things about that. And that won the Hugo Award for Best Graphic Novel. Uh, it beat out Saga, so I was like, "Oh, I should read that too." But I'm like so behind on my other reading that I was like, "I will." The list get of to. things to be read is never ending. No, it never, it never grows shorter. It only grows longer, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, I think that more or less about wraps it up. Uh, for yes, that's episode. what we're reading. Um, I think. What are we going to be discussing next week? Um, oh, next week we are going to discuss the publication process so after the editorial letter you've delivered your final manuscript now you know what delivery means uh, you've del- you've delivered your manuscript so what happens during sort of from production to publication so we're going to cover all those things like copy edits which are separate from your developmental edits like copy edits uh, first pass pages, galleys, launch, all those sorts of things, the sort of stuff that happens in between the writing and editing and when you see the book on the shelf as a physical product. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the publishing process. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website as sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, publishing crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Um, I just like had a thing where my mind just stopped working. <laughs> I just forgot how to speak for a little while. Uh, Mommy yeah. brain. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Try again. (laughs) (laughs) And take two.